this month on Security Management Highlights. She found that they suffered symptoms of numbness, anger, feeling haunted by incidents. A new study shows that first responders are suffering from anxiety and trauma, and innovative virtual reality programs may help with treatment. News and Trends editor Mark Tarallo tells us more. Most organizations are not doing a very good job on insider threats. Four years after the Snowden leaks, security professionals are still learning how to identify and prevent insider threats. Associate Editor Megan Gates joins us to talk about her October cover story. Plus, you have these challenges that don't exist when you and your whole team all reside within the same office. Global teams must overcome a variety of challenges, including different time zones, language barriers, and cultural differences to function as a well-oiled machine. Caroline Wong, Vice President of Security Strategy for Cobalt, shares her strategies for empowering international teams. I'm your host, Associate Editor Holly Gilbert Stowell, and that's all coming up on this month's episode of Security Management Highlights. New research is shedding light on the stress and trauma experienced by first responders, and treatment programs are underway that can help alleviate their symptoms. News and Trends editor Mark Tarallo has more on this topic. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Holly. You write that first responder trauma is an area that previously wasn't very well researched, but now there are a few studies coming out that shed light on this area. Tell us about the one in particular that your column focused on. Yes. A woman named Anastasia Miller. This is an interesting situation. She worked for about five years as a first responder herself. She was a firefighter and then an emergency medical service responder. And she found the work personally stressful. And as a graduate student, she decided to study this particular type of stress and its impact. So she wrote her doctoral dissertation on a study she did of first responders, and she looked at four categories of first responders, firefighters, law enforcement officers, emergency medical service providers, EMS providers, and dispatchers. And she included dispatchers in part because she had already interviewed several for a previous project, and she found that they suffered symptoms of numbness anger, feeling haunted by incidents that were really similar to post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. So she conducted this study and then wrote about it for her doctorate and had very interesting findings. Yes, and tell us more, Mark, about some of those findings. She found, in sum, that different types of responders can experience stress differently. For example, responders who do either one of two things. They either witness a traumatic event or they help a victim overcome an event afterward. But these responders are not directly involved with the event itself. So they either saw it or they help someone overcome its effects, but they weren't an actor in the event itself. They still may experience stress, which he calls secondary traumatic stress. And because these people are not victims of the event itself, they don't have PTSD per se, but some of the symptoms of secondary stress are similar to PTSD symptoms. Now, this secondary traumatic stress 
was pretty common in that she looked at first responders who experienced low levels of the secondary stress, and it was about 60% of the first responders experienced these low levels. 39% displayed moderate levels of the secondary stress, and 1% displayed high levels. But when she looked at the responders who displayed high levels of stress, she found that dispatchers and EMS personnel were the most likely to experience this high level of secondary stress. She also found, and this was consistent with previous research she had done, that dispatchers were the responders who showed the most burnout and felt the least amount of support. The way uh, the, her reaction to me was, I guess I was hoping that would not be the case, but it wasn't a surprise because what she found from working as a responder is that dispatchers really do experience stress, but they don't get the support that other responders do because people think, oh, they're just in an office working with communications. They're not at the event, but they really do experience stress. Tell us more about the peer support training program that's evolved into a clinical treatment program for first responders and how that's a resource for them recovering from these symptoms. Yeah, this is an interesting program also at the University of Florida, and it received a good amount of funding as of late. Several months ago, it got over $5 million in U.S. federal and state grant funding, but it's a virtual reality treatment system, and the basis for this is that traumatic memories create connections. So let's say you were bit by a vicious dog, and the dog was being walked by a man wearing a red shirt you may then make the connection that red shirts are bad, right? And they signify trouble because you were badly bitten by a dog who was walked by a guy in a red shirt. Well, in the treatment, what they would do is it would include a man with a red shirt walking a dog, but the dog would be very friendly. And so the idea is it's breaking the connection for you as a victim between the red shirt and vicious dog and replacing it with red shirt friendly dog. So eventually red shirts are less traumatic to you. So are you saying that they would recreate these traumatic scenarios like mass shootings and medical events? Yes, they'll recreate events that responders witness. And they'll use things like, okay, if a responder is a firefighter, they may recreate it with smoke smells and noises of fire engines. Recreating this on a sensory level, but having the virtual scenario turn out well. So if someone is haunted by a situation that turns out poorly, the recreated situation turns out well. And that less the connections, lessens the trauma. What scientists say is that the original memory maybe can never be 100% erased, but it really can be lessened like this. And it's an effective tool to treat stress and trauma for responders. Well, Mark, thanks for telling us more about this area that obviously there's, you know, tragedies, it seems like every day. So first responders, their jobs definitely aren't getting any easier. And this sounds like it's going to help. So thanks so much. Thanks, Holly. Four years ago, National Security Agency contractor Edward Snowden put the spotlight on insider threats when he stole and leaked a trove of government secrets. This scandal led to a wealth of new policies and programs designed to prevent history from repeating itself. Associate Editor Megan Gates is here to tell us more about what companies can do to protect their data and assets from these malicious actors. 
Hi, Megan. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Holly. Thanks for having me. Megan, your piece focuses not just on the insider threat, but the potential damage that these inside actors can carry out. So what were some of the findings from the Sands Institute survey that you looked at on this topic? Yeah, I'm glad that you brought this up. You know, sometimes when we're writing something, we know for sure that a report is going to come out that we will be able to use for our article. And this was just a random release from Sands that I wasn't aware of. And it came up and I was like, oh, this is fantastic for my piece because it addresses this issue that I had not found anything about before. So the SANS survey, it was Defending Against the Wrong Enemy 2017 SANS Insider Threat Survey by Eric Cole. He's a faculty fellow and former CTO of McAfee and chief scientist at Lockheed Martin. And so it was a survey of organizations with 100 to 100,000 employees. And basically it found that most organizations are not doing a very good job on insider threats. Most haven't aligned their budgets to address insider threats. Found that 31% of organizations say they don't even have a plan to address insider threats, meaning if they occur, they're unable to detect them at all. And less than 20% of organizations said that they had a formal incident response plan to deal with an insider threat should it happen. So all of this coming together means that companies aren't aware of when insiders might be attacking or stealing their data. For instance, you know, a company is in works to release a new product and the employee might steal information related to that product and give it to a competitor. So the product might fail in the market marketplace, but if the company doesn't have an insider threat program set up, it will never detect that that employee took that information and gave it to a competitor. It might just attribute the failing to, you know, just marketplace that didn't work out. Absolutely. And you write that trust is a critical component when finding new employees, that this is how you can kind of stem the insider threat before it even starts. And one expert you spoke to said this is exactly where companies can go wrong and make themselves susceptible to the insider threat. So why is vetting and screening prospective hires so important during the employment process? So yeah, this was something that was brought up. I went to RSA and Chris Inglis, former deputy director and senior civilian leader of the NSA, talked about this very issue in a presentation that I went to. And then he talked about the importance of when you hire people, you want to be able to trust them in your workplace. You want to be able to give them freedom to do their best job and to be creative about how they solve problems so that they can exceed your expectations. But to be able to give people that leeway to operate, you have to be able to trust them. So finding employees that you can trust through a vetting and screening process is really, really important. And I spoke to Sandra Stibberds. She's the chair of the ASIS Investigations Council and owner and president of Camelot Investigations. And she said one problem that she sees with a lot of organizations is that they don't do thorough background screenings of prospective employees. You know, they don't fully look into someone's background, checking like court records or police reports, many of which are not available on the internet. You have to actually go to an office in person and make a request to see them. So they're not getting a thorough picture of who this prospective employee is. Also, she sees people failing to just look at social media that's publicly available to determine, you know, what kind of person is this? Are they the person that they represented themselves to be in the interview process along with their combined like online social media life. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of this information is right at the employer's fingertips. Definitely an important point. And what are some of the technological processes that you found can be implemented to help a company protect its data and sensitive information? And also what is anomaly detection and how does that play an important role in combating the insider threat? 
So my sources that I talked to for this piece kind of all hit on the same major theme we've been seeing a lot in cybersecurity, which is going back to the, if you don't know what's in your network, what information and data that you have, you can't protect it. So it's really critical to map your data, to know where it is, where it lives, and who has access to it. And then it's important to set up a program, policies to ensure that, you know, only the people who need access to that data are getting access to it. And to set up like an internal monitoring system to see, oh, who's looking at my trade secret information or who is attempting to log into HR's system to look at people's files because that's important information you don't want everyone to have access to. And this is something I spoke about with Simon Gibson. He's the fellow architect at Gigamon and former CISO for Bloomberg LLP. And he talked about, you know, using a detection system like an anomaly detection system to see what's normal behavior in your network. And then it will send you a flag, you know, a notification if someone is doing something abnormal that maybe you should look further into. So we talked a lot about policies, procedures, and even technological tools. But what are some of the more human elements to preventing an insider threat from carrying out damage? What are some of the cultural components to this conversation. Yeah, that's an excellent point because what Chris Inglis said in his in his presentation was that technology is important, but culture is far more important. You know, if people feel valued and they know that their work is important and that the, the mission of what you as an organization do is important, they're way less likely to steal from you to try and harm your organization. Um, and so he had this really great quote in his presentation that I was just not able to squeeze into my feature. And he said, employees want to know that they're respected and that you take some notice of them and you give them some feedback on that. And he recommended to the audience in his presentation to go home and write an actual note on a physical piece of paper to an employee that's doing a good job, you know, write their name on it. And he said, put that in an envelope. This requires human effort and send it to someone. And I don't care whether they're 15 or they're 67, that will cause a soft moment. So it was a good moment of talking about your employees. They want to feel valued. They want to know that they're respected at work and that you take notice of them. And this will all help mitigate insider threats. Yes, that's a small exercise that can have a really powerful effect. So thank you so much, Megan, for discussing the insider threat with us. Thanks for having me, Holly. Finally, empowering teams that are international in nature is critical to their success, and managers can follow a few simple guidelines to give their workers the tools that they need. Caroline Wong, Vice President of Security Strategy for Cobalt, explains how she's done just that throughout her career as a security professional at companies including eBay and Symantec. Hi, Caroline. Welcome to the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Holly. Tell us what it means to empower a team and why that could be difficult given international barriers. Sure. So from my perspective, empowerment, it's sort of simple, is about giving power to your employees. And what that means is creating a workplace scenario where your employees have what they need to be successful. And I'm talking about power beyond simply delegation and access to the basic things they need, but really creating a scenario where an employee feels like he or she has some skin in the game, helping employees to develop their skills, giving them resources, giving them authority and opportunity and motivation, as well as really holding them responsible and accountable for their actions. This particular 
set of management practices is really intended to contribute to employee competence and satisfaction, which is intended to result in better workplace performance. I have found throughout my career, having managed several international teams in my 12-year cybersecurity career, empowerment is a particularly applicable tool when managing an international team because you have these challenges that don't exist when you and your whole team all reside within the same office. So you've got, at the very start, potential language barriers. Even if everyone does speak the same language, if you're working with folks in a different part of the world, it's likely that English was not their first language. You've also got cultural differences, things like how do managers and employees interact with each other being in the United States, we're, we're really used to a very American version of that, and that differs in different locations across the globe. And finally, and very practically, inconvenient time zones. It's one thing to do a conference call when you're in San Francisco and your colleague is on the East Coast. It's another when they're in a totally different part of the world and you're faced with a nine or even an 11 hour time zone change. So what are some of the strategies that you've utilized in your career to tackle those obstacles? In my career, one of the best solutions that I've encountered is actually to structure a team such that there are local managers. And when you've got a local manager and then empower that local manager, which is to say give him or her authority to make decisions as they need to run the local team, as well as with information and clear objectives to focus their work and do really sort of basic things like make sure they're written down, you know, make sure they're written down, make sure they're discussed in a one-on-one format to really ensure that the person is receiving the information that's being communicated. Make sure that these local managers are included in management meetings. You know, someone at a management level is a little more likely, I think, you know, no matter where they're located in the world to sort of raise their hand and say, hey, I can't hear you, than a more junior member of the team might be. So that you've got your local manager who's getting the same information that's being shared with the core team at headquarters. And then they're able to really work through a lot of those challenges, which is to say time zone, culture with the local teams. And then, of course, it's just as important to make sure that the local managers are held responsible for their actions. And in this way, you can really say, look, here's something that's your job and your objectives, and I'm going to give you a lot of freedom and a lot of authority to just make it work. And what I've observed throughout my career is that this improves both the professional satisfaction of the international teams as well as their impact. You write about the importance of accountability for empowering international teams. Tell us more about this and the RACI matrix you utilize at both eBay and Zynga. Even the term empowerment, it's got that word power. And that, on the face of it, says, okay, you're going to give things to your employees. And a lot of what we're talking about is giving things, giving information, giving opportunity, giving motivation. But on the flip side of it, it's just as important to ensure that folks are responsible and accountable for their actions. And whenever you have a team, whether it's local or international, and you have people working together, I have found that it's really, really important that people understand, like, what am I doing and what are you doing? Because if I understand what's mine to do and what you're actually depending on me to do versus what is yours to do and what I'm depending on you to do, then we can each sort of focus in our own area as long as we have those roles and responsibilities clearly defined as well as having a handoff process.
Now, I think the more people you have involved in any particular business process, the more complex the process is, the more complicated it is, of course. And so practically speaking, how do you go about doing that? When there's an existing process in place, my recommendation is actually to go individually to each of the team members who's participating in that particular process and ask them to write down what it looks like from their perspective. What are the discrete steps involved in the process and who is responsible for doing what and what are the gating processes in between to make sure that information and decisions get passed along from one stage to another. And I have found out that when I've done this in the past, you go and you ask several team members to do this process and guess what? You're probably going to get five different versions of a process, which of course, once you have that information, you have an opportunity to sort of clear up any misunderstandings or make decisions that can be communicated to the whole team about really who's responsible for doing what. And this can eliminate a lot of inefficiencies in business processes, things where folks, they're either gap where something's not getting done at all because everyone thinks that somebody else is doing it or duplication of work where folks think, well, no one else is doing it, so I'm going to do it. And then lots of people are actually doing the same thing. So I think that when roles and responsibilities are clearly defined, there's really an opportunity uh, to make a business process more efficient. So Caroline, how have you managed to overcome the communication barriers to the international teams you've been a part of? And why is that so important to the team's overall success? Yeah, the story I'm about to share with you is actually something I'm extremely proud of. It comes from my days of working in product management at Symantec. And I worked with an international team that I absolutely loved. And I actually looked forward to these cross-functional calls that we would do every two weeks. And the idea is that we would actually have folks from all sorts of different stakeholder teams on the call, all different locations throughout the United States and throughout the world. So it wasn't just my direct reports, but it also included representatives from the sales teams, marketing teams, support teams, and engineering. And I actually consider this to be a best practice for product management in general, but there are a couple special things that we did because we were working with an international team. We would actually do a call, and the structure of the call content-wise was such that each individual team was allowed to share what their recent accomplishments, next steps, any issues they were facing, any risks they were facing. Number one, to share with everyone, like, this is what I'm doing. Uh, And I think what that helped to do was prevent any sort of feeling like tension amongst the team, like, oh, we feel like that team's, you know, not doing what they're supposed to be doing. But if every two weeks you have this status update where people are sharing what they're doing, then you get visibility into someone else's work, even if you're not sitting right next to them physically in an office. So we would actually do that fairly quickly. We would go through each team's status, and then we would have a bunch of time left to do a deep dive into one or two issue areas. And these would be planned in advance. These were typically led by a team member who was not myself, but someone on the cross-functional team. They would ask a question to the larger group, or they would present a problem to the larger group, uh, and they would say, hey, how can we solve this together? And what would happen is we would start this very engaging dialogue and we'd have different people coming with their different perspectives and they would offer up different ways of thinking, different solutions. Now, a couple of special tweaks that we did during this cross-functional meeting to really make it work for our international team members. So one thing was before the meeting began, everyone documented their status in a PowerPoint deck that we all looked at during the meeting. And in this way, if somebody was mumbling, if somebody's audio wasn't working very well, then it didn't matter quite as much because 
because everyone could look at the PowerPoint slide and, and literally be on the same page and read the same information. The other thing that we did was we had an ongoing Skype chat so that if somebody missed something or didn't understand something, you know, whether that be because of audio quality or like a language issue or whatever, that somebody could more easily without having to speak up, they could sort of just chat and say, hey, what was that again? And then someone else could just chat and jump in. And they didn't have to, because it was sort of in parallel to the conversation going on, they didn't have to interrupt anything, but they could get their questions asked and answered. And so those are a few techniques that we use to really ensure that our team was communicating effectively with each other. Caroline, thanks for stopping by and sharing some of these best practices with us. My pleasure. Thank you, Holly. That does it for this month's podcast. Be sure to stay tuned throughout the month for bonus material. And also, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud so you don't miss an episode. Once again, I'm your host, Associate Editor Holly Gilbert-Stowell. Thanks for tuning in. Bye-bye.